Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. And with us, you have in the studio me, Nurse EpiPen, Dr G Spot and Panel Beater. And Panel Beater is going to do all the Zoomy things. And sadly, we can't have the guests in the studio. Malpractice, Dr Malpractice, who usually hosts this show, is not with us today as he's holidaying in country Victoria after having his New South Wales holiday curtailed due to the you-know-what. Morning, Mal. I know you're out there. I'm sure he is listening. <laughs> He'll be checking up on us at G-Spot. I know, I know. I'm expecting a lot of text messages from him throughout the show. A big <laughs> shout out to Dr. Malpractice and all of our listeners. It's a pleasure to be here with Nurse EpiPen and our wonderful Zoom guests. Indeed. So, morning, G-Spot. Morning, Nurse EpiPen. What a cracker of a show we have all about the heart. I can't wait. Oh, I know. It's just so exciting. My heart is pounding now. Let's everyone take their pulses at home (laughs) and call in with your result. And morning panel beater. Oh, he's just... Okay. Uh, (laughs) Good morning. Great to see you guys. He's doing a great job with the buttons, everyone. Thank you so much, panel beater, for your help today. Very welcome. Very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So this morning we'll be chatting to two eminent, eminent cardiologists who know a hell of a lot about our hearts are tickers, or basically the beatboxes of our bodies. So we've got Shane, Dr. Shane Nanakara, and he's a return guest because he loved being on the show so much. He said, can I come back again? And We <laughs> we think, never say no to someone asking to come back, do we, Nurse EpiPen? Absolutely, and especially when they are a great guest. Absolutely. So Shane is an interventional and structural cardiologist at the Alfred and Cabrini Hospital and a researcher at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute at Monash University. He is passionate about patient education for both understanding their conditions and the treatment options of their hearts. And secondly, we have the very famous and very intelligent and bright Professor Peter Kistler, who is an international leader in cardiac arrhythmias, and he basically knows how the heart beats. He's the Head of Clinical Electrophysiology Research at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute and Head of Electrophysiology at the Alfred Hospital. I'm sure he'll explain what all of those big words mean when he speaks with us. He's passionate about getting to the heart of what causes atrial fibrillation and is the senior author of many papers and randomised studies and publications and everything that's academic, as well as being a a lovely clinician. His research has helped us better understand the role of alcohol and coffee in heart rhythm disorders. Everyone's favourite drinks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I can't Uh, wait to hear more. um, As well as ablation in improving heart function. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. 
We're not going to dally here about talking about music and news, but we have our resident psychologist, Dr G-Spot, who's going to talk to us about some research about the heart. Thank you so much, Nurse EpiPen. I've really enjoyed reading up on the heart, in particular, the impacts of love on our heart. Has that ever crossed your mind, Nurse EpiPen? What happens to our heart when we're in love? Oh my gosh, does it beat faster or what? (laughs) You're absolutely right, Nurse EpiPen. So in the earliest stages of love, so that's probably more the lust and attraction phases, we have adrenaline and norepinephrine making the heart beat faster. So you might find your heart racing simply just thinking about your love interest, not even when you're with them. So you're absolutely right. And I will say that this is um, wonderful research by Ortegu et al, published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. So we know that love and that, that I suppose, that lust phase doesn't last forever, does it, Nurse EpiPen? No. <laughs> I know that's that sounds like a really jaded <laughs> response there. <laughs> so we have to we, work at it. You you really do. Um, so later in the relationship, when that lust fades a bit and that that deeper bonding occurs, we have endorphins and also the hormone vasopressin and oxytocin, creating that feeling of well-being and wellness. Um, particularly, this leads to lower blood pressure and heart rate. So while you have that initial um, rapid heart beating in that lust and attraction phase as the lust fades and we move into that deeper bonding phase we actually have better heart health with lower blood pressure and heart rate and I love this fact so long-term lovers can also grow so close that their hearts beat in sync isn't that incredible oh I think we're going to have to run that past the experts I don't- <laughs> I would love to hear their thoughts on this. Um, and it's the research says that if one of them's in pain, just holding hands can synchronise their breathing and help their discomfort go away. So oh. when you see like old folks holding hands on, <laughs> on the park bench, that's what they're doing, right? They're, they're calming they're themselves. Sinking. Exactly, exactly. But as we can imagine, with all these good impacts on our heart with being in love, the flip side is that when we experience heartbreak, it can raise our risk of cardiovascular disease, unfortunately. And also grief after losing a loved one can result in increased risk of atrial fibrillation, which we are going to be talking about later. So my advice to our listeners is love is awesome. So just be careful of who you give your heart to. It's not just a organ to pump blood. Indeed, indeed. And To add to that, I've got a really interesting fact, which I wonder if our cardiologist friends know about it. Mm. But did you know that the ancient Romans held a curious belief about the heart, that there is a vein extending from the fourth finger of the left hand directly leading to the heart? It's called the vena amoris. Okay. Okay. So even though this idea was based on incorrect knowledge of the human anatomy, as we all know that's incorrect, it persisted. And in medieval period in England, during the marriage ceremony, the groom was told to place a ring on the bride's fourth finger because of that vein. Wow. And wearing a wedding ring on that fourth finger goes right back to the days of the Romans. That's incredible, Nurse EpiPen. How about that? Oh, 
Very interesting. I never knew that. I mean, obviously, you know, we have our, uh, you know, method of communication with flipping the bird, giving the middle finger. Um, (laughs) So that's why I thought it was the fourth finger um, so that we weren't giving the bird with our wedding ring finger. But that's so, so interesting. Wow. I would love to hear our guests' thoughts on these news items. Indeed. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And it's my great pleasure to introduce our first guest for today's show, All About the Heart. It's Dr. Shane. He's an international and structural, sorry, an interventional and structural cardiologist at the Alfred and at the Cabrini Hospital. He's super interested in education as well as heart failure, all things heart. And it's my great pleasure to welcome him to the show. Welcome, Dr. Shane. And my first question for you today is how did you actually become interested in the field of heart and heart disease? Well, when I was younger, going through school, I had a a dad who's also a doctor and who was also interested in the heart. And then over time, as I went through university, there were lots of different areas that were interesting, but there was one that just intrinsically made sense to me. And sometimes, despite other things being interesting, when something just makes sense, it was the one that I would always pursue. So I'd go and look at other specialties and be interested in what they were doing. But this is the one that just I I got. And so uh, it's always been interesting to me. My, probably my favorite bit is that there are so many different parts. What Peter does uh, with the electrophysiology side of things, what we can do with valves and stents, and uh, it's, it's all fascinating to me. It really is, and we're so grateful to, for you to be sharing your knowledge with our listeners today. So it sounds like there, Dr. Shane, no regrets in choosing the specialty of cardiology. Absolutely not. <laughs> so <laughs> what's new in treating heart disease? What, what might our listeners not be aware of? What's the latest? I think from uh, what we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years is this explosion in the field of what we call structural cardiology. And that means being able to fix things that required open heart surgery now using more what we call percutaneous techniques or keyhole surgery. And that typically involves us making, uh, putting a needle in through the groin. And before we could only put things like stents in there. Those are little metal meshes that open up the blood vessels around your heart. They're something like three, four, five millimeters in diameter. But now we can put entire heart valves through your groin and they're much bigger and it means a quicker recovery for the patient uh, and we can avoid the need for open heart surgery in many cases. That sounds so wonderful, Dr. Shane, although I will admit when you said through the groin, I did go owl and I'm just wondering about patients' experiences with heart valves through the groin. Absolutely. I should always clarify the groin is upper thigh just to be very clear there's a blood vessel in your right upper thigh that's quite useful for us but um uh, it it is uh it's a procedure that's done with sedation so no general anesthetic and although a lot of people will say well just knock me out i don't want to know about it it (laughs) saves you a lot of risk of needing a general anesthetic and it means that you recover a lot faster so uh things have really changed in the field of cardiology thanks to a lot of these interventions not just for valves or for stents, but lots of other things opening up where we can fix holes in the heart, for example, uh, to through your groin. That sounds amazing, Dr. Shane. I suppose when you watch heart surgery on television, do you have a bit of a chuckle to yourself? Like, what do you think of the television depictions of heart surgery? Well, the first thing is a lot of my depictions come from the show House, for example, or Scrubs. Scrubs <laughs> is there is very accurate, I've got to be honest. But um, <laughs> I love the idea where in some shows there'll be 
in the room. They'll do an operation, they'll take a sample, and then there's a microscope just two, me two meters away, and then someone will analyze it right there and there. It's not quite how it works. You mean that is not real? <laughs> oh, I'm I so disappointed. <laughs> So it sounds like um, real life is not quite as quick as it seems on television. Not quite, but I have to say the technology is getting so much better now that sometimes in some areas it is very much like science fiction. Just last week there was a world first where we have a hologram depicted in front of the cardiologist doing the procedure with a 3D picture of their heart so you can see what they're doing on a screen with an X-ray and with an ultrasound but also in 3D floating in front of you. That is so cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and Nurse EpiPen's yeah, got a hot question for uh, you, so um, I'm going to throw to her. Shane, you mentioned 3D. Will we ever get to the point where our hearts are so unwell that we could have a 3D heart? Yeah, there are people working on 3D-printed hearts, 3D-printed scaffolds. A lot of what we do at the moment is around mechanical pumps that replace some of the heart function when your heart gets quite sick. But people are working on what are called total artificial hearts, entirely mechanical hearts, but also this idea of having a 3D printed skeleton, if you like, of a heart, and then you add cells onto that so that it is more of your own cells that are growing a new heart. That technology is still a little while away, but it's certainly an exciting field of where we're going. That, that's a wowzer. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I've been hearing a lot more about 3D printers and the fact that we can even consider uh, printing a heart is truly incredible. Yeah. Um, so I've got a question for um, both of you or one could – I suppose I should target it to somebody. That's fairer. So, Shane, <laughs> I'm going to ask you about um, the Pfizer vaccine um, so these all and Moderna, and, well, you know, um, they're all. I should maybe I should call them the mRNA vaccines. Go for it. <laughs> so, um, what what's the story behind these vaccines um, being linked with some um, inflammation of the cardiac tissue myocarditis? Yeah. So to to wind it back, the, there have been some recent reports since about February this year, extending to now in different countries, primarily Israel, the UK and the US, of the vaccines, these messenger RNA vaccines being associated with two types of inflammation of your heart. One is called myocarditis and one is called pericarditis. Your heart's a muscle and around that muscle, there's a thin layer that protects your heart from everything else that's in your chest. And that layer is called the pericardium. If you get inflammation of anything in your body, we usually have the word itis. So inflammation of that layer, that outer lining is called pericarditis, and inflammation of the muscle is called myocarditis. Now, over those last few months, there have been these reports that when, you, when patients have had the vaccine, a very small number of them have had this inflammation, either of the muscle or of that lining outside the heart. And so increasingly, people are scrutinizing these vaccines to say, is there some concerning link here? Should we be worried? And then a few days ago, they published two reports. One of them was the larger one looking at a, a collection of military personnel in the United States. Now, it's important to note that there were 2.8 million doses administered through the military. And this report was of 23 to 27 military personnel who had myocarditis as a consequence, potentially, of the vaccine. It's a bit hard to know, though. It is something that happens, both myocarditis and pericarditis, outside of the vaccine. And what they're looking at is these people all seem to be young males, for example, and it seems there's a concern that perhaps in young males there's a higher risk 
of these particular conditions, myocarditis and pericarditis. So do we know the possible mechanism, Dr. Shane, or are we still, um, are we still kind of working that out at the moment? Of, I mean, we, we haven't really established a causal link, as you're saying, but do we have any potential ideas as to how it might be causing inflammation? Absolutely. And, it's a very – oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, and Peter might like to add to that bit as well. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Shane, go right ahead and then we'll throw it to Dr. Peter. Sounds good. So essentially it's very early days. And so people are still figuring out whether this is causal or just an association, meaning is it due to the vaccine or is it just something that's happened because we're screening aggressively for it? All of these reports are what we call self-reported. So the systems that track these adverse events require patients or doctors to tell as an administrative body that this has happened. It's very possible that this is what we call immune-mediated. The immune system in your body is there to fight infection and inflammation and potentially related to the vaccine happening that we're having an autoimmune reaction where the body's own immune system is attacking the heart muscle or the heart layer around the heart while it's getting confused around something related to the vaccine. But it's still early days and uh, more information is being figured out every day. Mm, Thank you, Dr. Shane. Over to you, Dr. Peter. Yeah, as Shane's uh, beautifully covered, we're we're still learning a lot about this, but there's a couple of um, other aspects to it. One is it seems to happen much more commonly in young males, and it's almost exclusively after the second dose of the vaccine. Um, So like we've seen with with other um, side effects, if you will, around the vaccine, it, it does seem to be somewhat related to whether it's the first or the second dose. I suppose to also put it in perspective, myocarditis occurs in around two to 4% of young people who who actually develop COVID. So they've looked at this in athletic Americans and found that sort of incidence. And in people hospitalised with COVID, the incidence of of cardiovascular complications might be anywhere from 10 to 60%. So it's a very, very rare association. The young people who've presented with this generally present with chest pain and uh, they have an elevation in in their blood enzymes and also some changes on on cardiac imaging, but um, they seem to all recover uh, very, very well. And we certainly wouldn't want to put any of our listeners off uh, being vaccinated uh, on the basis of this very rare uh, association. Yeah, thank you. That's very reassuring. Absolutely, Dr. Peter. I was going to say, as a younger female, I've I've done well with Pfizer. <laughs> um, I've I've loved it. I just had a sore arm, folks. So if you're willing to tolerate a sore arm, then absolutely go for it. Yeah, and, and I'm a COVID um, person, uh, not a COVID person, an AstraZeneca. No, they call it Zenny. Are you a Zenny? I'm a Zenny person. Oh, okay. Yeah. So wow, um, you've even got a, a collective group name. That's yeah, impressive. Yeah, I'm a Zenny person. <laughs> and and Nurse Ebby Penn is looking very well, I can assure all our <laughs> listeners. So go out and get vaccinated, guys. Um, uh, so, Dr Shane, um, I'm just wondering, I suppose, um, this is a bit of a broader question, what are the most common misconceptions people have about their hearts that you sometimes have to correct in your clinical practice or even uh, in your uh, status as an educationer? Yeah, I think a lot of the... When people have heart issues, one of the first things you want to think about is what are the lifestyle things that I did that led to my heart problem? And also, what are the lifestyle things that I can do now that I have one that might make things better? And part of the reason for the misconceptions that exist is that there are still lots of questions of what we don't know about your heart. 
I think, for example, uh, we talk about uh, reducing salt or reducing saturated fat intake, really important, as is exercise during the week. But a lot of people want to know what type of exercise is beneficial and how much should I do and when does it suddenly become good exercise versus useless exercise. Mm. And I think the thing to keep in mind with all of this is that any is good. That If you can get five minutes a day, that's all that matters. But establishing good habits is more important than anything else. And so don't go onto the website and it says 30 minutes a day, five times a week and get scared and say, I'm not going to be able to do that much. I, absolutely, that's where we want to get people to. But start with just creating good habits with five minutes a day of walking outside and getting some fresh air and not even for the purpose of a brisk walk, just go at your own pace. And then gradually over time, set yourself those targets. It's like for all of us, when we try and set up a gym membership and it looks very <laughs> frightening and you go there and you decide, I'm not going to do this anymore. But if you just start with very small goals, you'll get there. And I think the other lifestyle part is the research that Peter's been doing. The work around alcohol and caffeine that he'll talk about, these are things that people traditionally haven't necessarily looked at. We've been very focused on medications and drugs and interventions that we can do, but really winding it back to what are the simple things that we should be targeting to improve your health are critical. I'm very excited to hear Peter talk about alcohol, caffeine, and the other lifestyle things we can do for atrial fibrillation. Thank you so much for that wonderful advice, Dr. Shane. I think um, it all sounds very achievable. Uh, I think even just walking to the gym in the first part, hey, not even going inside. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and you touching on, uh, I suppose, lifestyle things there, Dr. Shane, something that really interests me is the impact of mental health on our heart health. Is that something you uh, deal with routinely as well? Yeah, I think it's it's a huge part of it, actually. How you even before you get diagnosed with heart disease, your mental health has a major predictor in terms of your stress levels on the development of coronary disease in particular, that's disease related to heart attacks down the track. But also once you have a heart issue, how you are informed about it, how you deal with it, mindfulness and everything around that is still really important. And I think part of cardiac rehabilitation is offering the physical part of it, but also the mental part of it. And to start off, I think, Mindfulness-based stress reduction techniques are very important, but also around educating yourself as much as possible around what your heart condition is and what are the things you can do to improve it over time. Great points about um, prevention there, Dr. Shane, with just practicing routine mindfulness as um, a way of keeping your both brain and heart healthy. Uh, something I also see in my own clinical practice is people who've been through heart surgery and um, an, an inevitable depression. I suppose it's, it's fairly common to feel quite depressed afterwards. What are your comments on that? Yeah, I think heart surgery is a big undertaking, whether it's as big as open heart surgery, but even having a stent. It's the, there are so many contributors in terms of having the event in the first place. And sometimes there's blame put on yourself around what you might have done to contribute, but also around uh, the people who are there to support you before and afterwards and how it affects your lifestyle going forward, new medications or new restrictions around what you do. It's all a lot to take in. And it's really important that you inform yourself by reading as much as you can, by going to websites like the Heart Foundation, by talking to your GP and talking to other people in support groups. And there are lots for all different types of heart conditions. Remember, there's not only the heart conditions that we get in terms of things we acquire over time, like uh, blockages in the blood vessels around your heart, but also genetic heart conditions. And there are a huge number of support groups around helping people who have families that are affected by these genetic heart conditions and specific clinics that help in those areas.
Thank you so much, Dr. Shane. That's really wonderful advice. And I think Dr. Peter has uh, some more to add. Yeah, I, I think as sometimes as, as cardiologists and clinicians, we, we tend to think far too much about the physical rather than the psychological. And we've looked at this with respect to atrial fibrillation and up to 25% of people who have atrial fibrillation have suicidal ideation. So just talking to people about their, their mental health when they have physical conditions like cardiac conditions is just so important. Just giving them an opportunity to talk about their feelings. And, and in the case of atrial fibrillation, often offering substantial reassurance that this is not a condition where you're going to, to drop dead. It's not associated with uh, heart attacks per se. It does have an important association with stroke. And just the opportunity to discuss um, this often gives people a lot of reassurance. Thank you so much, Dr. Peter. And um, if suicidal ideation is something you're experiencing or someone you know, please reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14. Um, really, really good point there. I, would you mind, Nurse Epipen, if I potentially did the last question here? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Nurse Epipen. <laughs> um, so, Dr. Shane, I was doing a bit of Google stalking on you. I hope you don't mind. It's all very innocent. Um, I, I read that you're very interested in artificial intelligence research related to the Heart, and I'm a bit of an AI geek myself. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about it. Absolutely. So artificial intelligence is often misconstrued sometimes to be heading towards Terminator. But the idea <laughs> is that it's just about a computer being able to take in lots of information, lots of data, and try and make sense of it in some way. And so what we're really interested in is Nowadays, more than ever, we have access to huge amounts of data. So we have monitors that we go on, that we put on heart patients, and we have um, blood tests and all of these things that create lots of different data points. And hopefully, we can take in millions of patients' information and try and provide more specific information for patients. So when we maybe do a procedure next, instead of saying your chance of this outcome happening is one in a 500, and that's what it is for the state, we can give individualized estimates for a patient. And same when we're choosing what medications we're going to use, we can provide individualized estimates. It's all about trying to create what we call precision medicine, where we're trying to create an answer for that individual patient, because we've got information on so many patients like you, rather than trying to provide a generic amount of information that applies to everybody. That sounds so wonderful, Dr. Shane. You know, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed that we're not working towards the Terminator, but the individualised <laughs> medicine sounds wonderful too. Thank you so much for this wonderful interview and we hope you might consider staying on the line with us. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I'd like to introduce um, Michael. So Michael um, is a gentleman who has had <laughs> an experience of AF. And maybe you'd like to take it away, Michael, and tell us about what happened to you and how you've managed AF. Well, thanks, thanks, Nurse EpiPen. It, it was 10 years ago, so my memory may not be um, all that accurate. But um, it was my wife and I had been out to some friends of ours um, who were Spanish, and he uh, favored, you know, thought he was a, quite a good chef, and actually he was. And he cooked up this beautiful paella, and it was washed down with a lot of red wine. And you know, we were all feeling pretty good at the end of the evening. 
Um, and about six o'clock in the morning, I woke up uh, with my heart pounding with, and it felt very irregular. It was sort of like a, a little canary in my chest, you know, you know trying, trying to get out. And my wife, who had some training in cardiology nursing in the UK, um, took my pulse and said, come on, we're going off to the hospital. <laughs> so I ended up at uh, one of the local uh, hospitals and uh, turned out to be atrial fibrillation uh, on uh, electrocardiogram. Um, and so I was put into the coronary care unit there and um, they tried to do the cardioversion, you know, with the paddles on the chest uh, under an anaesthetic. Um, th that, that didn't work, but thankfully, um, they changed one of the drugs I was on called a, called a beta blocker. Um, and that, that, that over 24 hours worked. And um, I've been pretty good ever since. I've been on um, two medications, a beta blocker and um, another drug uh, to, to control the abnormal rhythm. Um, and I think I've, in the last 10 years, I've probably had one sort of small episode which seems to have reverted itself spontaneously. So I didn't need to go back to hospital. Um, and so, really, I've been been fairly fairly good, fairly stable. And I sort of get a I follow up follow up every year with my cardiologist, and there really haven't been any issues for for ten years. And um, and yes, so that's and, my story. And do you get anxious that you might go into AF again, or do you check your pulse, or do you <laughs> do? You... Uh, yeah, look, yes, yes. Um, my wife is sort of always looking at the corner of my eye when I when I'm feeling my pulse. Um, I, I, I went through a phase there where I was having a lot of what, what, what are called ectopic beats. Um, you just easily get runs of those, which would make me feel a bit odd. And I, th I thought, oh, I'm having another episode of AF. But um, again, the cardiologist uh, had a look at that and, and, and um, I had to wear a monitor for 24 hours a couple of times. And I was just having fairly regular, sorry, sorry unpredictable ectopic beats. But um, it, they feel very different to the real. I think when you when you're in AF, you sort of really know it because you feel very very odd and very strange. Uh, did you attribute the going into AF from a big night of drinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I know the story of um, alcohol and AF, but I mean, in the last ten years, um, you know, I've been I, I sort of drink wine fairly frequently, um, <laughs> and. Maybe it has something to do with producing the ectopic beats, but I, as I say, I, I, I really don't think I've had an episode of AF. Um, it's certainly not an episode that's required hospitalisation and, and further treatment in, in a coronary care unit, no. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that story. And now I'm going to uh, reintroduce Professor Peter Kistler. As, we, as I said at the beginning of the show, he's the head of clinical electrophysiology research and knows all about heartbeats, basically. So maybe, um, Peter, could you uh, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into cardiology and then explain a lot of the words that we've mentioned and Michael's mentioned, arrhythmias and ECGs and um, ectopics and those sorts of um, terms. Over to you. Thanks very much, Nurse Epipenye. Look, I, I got really interested in, in cardiology. Uh, a lot of things um, in common with, with Dr. Shane in terms of being attracted to the heart, but also uh, with, with cardiology, there's a great diversity in the, in the treatments we can offer people from, we'll talk about some of the lifestyle aspects, but a lot beyond medication to the interventions. And on 
my side, Dr. Shane's very much about the plumbing and the and the um, the the engine, if you like. And my side is very much about the wiring, or or as you've alluded to, the heartbeat. And when the heartbeat goes out of synchrony, so normally what happens is the heartbeat begins in the upper right corner of the heart, is conducted through the upper two chambers to the lower chambers in a one-to-one -one fashion. And when people go into atrial fibrillation, uh, like Michael was talking about, the top chambers beat anywhere from 400 to 600 beats a minute. But fortunately, there's a little filter in the middle which uh, slows the transmission of the beats through to the bottom chamber so that people have this sort of spluttering, inefficient way in which their heart works. So that, that's what happens with atrial fibrillation. Now, alcohol or binge drinking is a, is a trigger for about half the admissions to the emergency departments with, with atrial fibrillation. So it's a really well-recognised association. And um, so, so we, we've been doing a lot of studies looking at the, uh, at the role of, of alcohol, some popular, some very unpopular. Right, right. I'm, I'm quite interested in the unpopular uh, Professor Peter. <laughs> what okay. makes them unpopular? All right. So the, the unpopular one, which we, we, we had published in our biggest journal, the New England Journal, which was I was fangirling slightly about that. I, I won't lie. Her congratulations on a publica uh, publication in that journal. Very impressive. Thank you. Yeah, look, it was interesting in that they decided to publish this paper on alcohol and atrial fibrillation on the 2nd of January. So they, they chose the date quite clearly around New Year's Ouch. Eve. Ouch. <laughs> anyway, this study was unpopular in that it took a bunch of so-called social drinkers who had atrial fibrillation. So a, a social drinker is that is that sort of classic share a bottle of wine with their partner four, five, six times a week. So the cutoff was more than 10 standard drinks per week and a standard drink is about a 150 ml um, wine or a, or a 250 ml beer, 30 ml spirit. And what we did was we, we asked half the people in a randomised fashion to stop drinking and then we looked at um, the impact that had on their atrial fibrillation. Now th this study hadn't been done before and it was a very difficult study to do so we approached nearly 700 people and most people said, yeah, we'll be very happy to be part of your study, provided we can go in the drinking arm. <laughs> we had to say, look, you know, that's not really the way randomised studies work. So after approaching 700, we came down to 140 people and we were able to randomise that. And in the people that stopped drinking, half of them no longer had atrial fibrillation. Wow. So it was a pretty dramatic finding. Do you know if they um, kept abstaining um, after those fantastic results? Uh, <laughs> we are planning to follow them. Up. I suspect um, a number of them, and we've got some pretty nice examples of those that returned to drinking and their atrial fibrillation came back. Oh. But it, it's a really important question. And thank goodness in the last year or so, that whole rise in non-alcoholic beverages and, and, and even bars um, is really coming to the fore when... Uh, Alcohol is such an ingrained part of uh, Western culture, really. Um, Dr Shane, I think you've got a question or a comment. I just wanted to add in what uh, an amazing work it was. Associate Professor Voskovoynik and Peter together just doing this amazing collection of patients to screen through hundreds and hundreds to be able to do this and for the patients who did uh, participate in being involved in that type of study because, as you said, it was 
published very well and it really is game changing to not only look at how we can treat a condition like this by having true information that now we can go and educate patients about. Uh, people like Michael before saying, you know, there are often questions saying, how much does an, a drink or two or three a week actually affect my heart? And now we've got scientific data around it. So it's an incredible effort. Fabulous. So I've got a question to you, Peter. Um, you say it's it's good to reduce your drinking or even stop, but what support do you give to these people that have had habitual, moderate drinking through for many years and I mean that's why you had people that didn't participate because they just couldn't have gone in the arm where they gave it up um surely what's what do you, what's your comment on that so firstly um everything I'm talking about is is alcohol intake in people with atrial fibrillation so not in people who don't have atrial fibrillation so what what I tend to um talk about is it is very difficult for people to abstain completely so generally I, I suggest two to three standard drinks per week. And we talk, and I talk to them about interchanging other drinks. So if they're in a social situation, they might have one alcoholic drink and then they'll have a non-alcoholic um, drink um, that they don't drink, you know, when they're not in, in, in a social situation, um, that they try and introduce other activities in place of when they would usually drink. Uh, and just the education, and people can clearly see the relationship between alcohol and atrial fibrillation. So that own self-reinforcement self can be really useful as well. Mm. Um, certainly um, there are many support uh, services in Victoria and around Australia. There's one in particular called Direct Line and they, if you do have trouble, they, they offer a fabulous service because, I mean, you could, there's some stigmatism about going to seek help as a person with a problem of drinking. But if people are serious about it there and um, that well-being in many ways that you can have if you've had AF or diabetes or heart disease and um, they're, they're the ways to help you reduce or even get off alcohol. And I think you can't underestimate the good of these services. And I think you'd, the best person to start with is your GP and then um, Direct Line. So it's directline.org.au is a great service if people were interested. Um, so one of the things I also was thinking about um, speaking you, with you, Peter, is not only AF, but what about some of the other heart rhythms that we can have? There's, there, do you know how many there are? There are hundreds? Uh, not, <laughs> not quite hundreds, but um, like Michael um, was talking about with ectopics, so that's his concept of, a, of an extra beat. And then after people have this extra beat, they have a pause in their heartbeat afterwards, and they can be really troubling. Um, What's, what's developed just in recent times along what Dr. Shane was discussing earlier is this whole concept of, of monitoring and, and AI to some extent. And nowadays there are, there are wearables or watches available which can actually provide you with an ECG. So wow. people often get really frustrated and this crosses over with what we were talking about with mental health earlier on and anxiety. I've seen many, many people treated for anxiety who actually have an arrhythmia because the, the symptoms often um, cross over that sensation of their heart beating more quickly. And nowadays, with, with some of the watches that are available, you can actually um, record an ECG and, and get to the bottom of actually what's going on with your heart. Mm, fascinating. We have a friend who was telling us about her watch, and she can monitor when she falls over. 
Yeah. So these she needs a watch to tell her when she falls over. Yeah. Has she been on the alcohol herself? Yeah. yeah, probably. And the watch doesn't stand it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, um, I've, I have uh, a person who has asked a question for today's show about supraventricular tachycardias, so SVTs. So in, when I did my cardiology training, it was high balls and low balls where you triggered the uh, vagal nerve. Is that still what you do or are there other treatments for SVT? Yeah, so the, the, the practical one is that you can um, increase the pressure within your chest and, and sometimes it, it's called a Valsalva manoeuvre where you can either put, just put your fist in your belly and push down hard. It's this kind of straining type mechanism. And what that can do is just transiently interrupt the circuit of, of SVT. Now, what SVT is, is usually there's just one electrical connection between the upper and lower chambers of the heart. But people with SVT um, often have two. And SVT is really common. Like apparently Miley Cyrus has SVT. And nowadays we tend not to give people medication for SVT, but there's a procedure um, called catheter ablation, uh, which generally cures it about 98% of the time with minimal complications. Can I say I'm not surprised Miley Cyrus has uh, heart problems because her dad sung about achy, breaky hearts. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, boom, boom. While you're doing your boom, boom, you've got a joke for us. I know. Going from bad to worse here, I apologise to our guests and listeners. So I'm going to ask everyone a question. If you steal or rob someone's heart, what do you get? I'm out. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You get a cardiac arrest. Oh. Uh, and we have continued our tradition of terrible dad jokes. Thank you, Nurse EpiPen, and thank you, everyone, for bearing with me. Um, so could you just talk a bit, um, Peter, about ablation? What, what's, what's that and how do you do it and um, what's the success rate? It's particularly probably in AF but in other um, cardiac arrhythmias as well. Um. So coming back to where we start with Dr. Shane and the groin, yeah, cardiologists seem to have this sort of somewhat fascination with about a, a, a one centimetre area in the right groin crease, which is, is how we get to the heart. Um, so with, with ablation, um, we put four little tubes about the size of drinking straws into that vein, and that acts as a portal for us to uh, then pass wires up inside the heart. And what we do now with... Um, catheter ablation is people often have a a CT scan of their heart and then we take that 3D model into our um, mapping systems and we use that real time to uh, work out where people's um, heart rhythm problems are. Now atrial fibrillation is this chaotic storm of electrical activity which comes from the veins at the back of the upper left chamber. So what we do to get there is we have to make two tiny intentional little holes in a natural thin part of the heart wall, while it's beating, while the person's breathing, get across into that upper left chamber and then deliver a series of little burns around the openings of those uh, veins to stop the fibrillation getting into the heart. Mm. It takes about two hours, one night in hospital, and it works about nearly 80% of the time in significantly reducing people's Mm. um, episodes. 
Fascinating. I worked in the guys' hospital in the cardiac catheter lab and we did sort of start some of those early procedures years ago. But we also had fabulous music in the background. Are you a person that listens to music during these procedures? <laughs> Elton, Elton John? Yeah, the, the music gets turned down when I'm making those little punctures to get from one side to the other. But, um, yeah, at, at other times, you know, like uh, Madonna's Burn for You, you know, uh, all that all that sort of thing can be uh, can be playing, yeah. Nice, nice. Shane, I think you have something to comment to say? I was just going to say, we were saying before about the vena amoris being from the right finger all the way to the heart. Really, the groin crease is where cardiologists find the vein that goes all the way back to the heart. Oh, nice. But I can't think of then the long-term consequence of putting wedding rings down there and... <laughs> I don't think that all links very well. Oh, fascinating. So, yep, we're going to um, have to sadly sort of wrap up a little bit um, because we need some sponsors and then we'll come back to the two of us, uh, EpiPen and G-Spot, and we'll say farewell. So over to you, Panel Beta. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I'm going to go back to Peter because one of the things that we spoke about at the beginning of this, of his segment was, or he mentioned, alcohol, and then there's coffee. Now, Peter, would you like to tell us a bit about the link between coffee and arrhythmias? Yeah, well, firstly, uh, it's been a fair bit of doom and gloom about alcohol, so I, I think I should kind of square it off a little bit with coffee. Oh, thank goodness. If, if there's one thing people should take from um, this discussion this morning is that coffee is very good for you. Now, about 80% of doctors will tell their patients with arrhythmias to stop drinking coffee, and there's absolutely no medical evidence to support that. So if any docs listening out there... Stop telling your patients to stop drinking coffee. So coffee has a, a, a lot of a lot of benefits. Coffee has more than a hundred biologically active components, and it's not just about the caffeine. So coffee overall actually improves survival, reduces cardiovascular mortality, reduces heart failure, reduces diabetes, and reduces symptoms related to asthma. And we're also, we, we use the term um, cognitive enhancement and we'd all testify to the benefits of uh, drinking coffee. And I, I don't think there are too many docs out there that, that I know that, that start work without actually having a cup of coffee. So coffee is good for you. People that go on cleansing diets to exclude coffee doesn't make any sense. The sweet spot for coffee is probably to two to three cups if you can, if you can tolerate that much. And decaffeinated is a good option because it just doesn't have as much caffeine but has all the other benefits. And there, so there's no relationship between coffee and atrial fibrillation as well. So some people do notice an association and absolutely, um, you know, if you do notice that association, then you should reduce or stop your coffee intake. But overall, when we look at big population studies, there is no clear relationship between coffee intake and rhythm problems of the heart. 
That's that's incredibly reassuring. I'm sure there have been some myths about coffee that's been disseminated in the public. I'm pretty sure we'll get like Nescafe as a sponsor now. So thank you very much, <laughs> Professor Peter. <laughs> Um, is there anything else that you can say about supporting heart health, um, Peter, in particular? Um, well, I, you know, we were talking about exercise before and, and often I see people who've developed rhythm problems with their heart and they immediately stop exercising. Um, it's actually a, a relatively uncommon association, that of um, exercise and, and rhythm problems. Saying that on the flip side is that if you're an endurance athlete, so we're talking about marathon runners, rowers, um, cyclists in particular, I, we, we're more and more seeing those people when they're in their 40s, 50s and 60s with atrial fibrillation. So overall, about a three to five-fold increased risk of AF in mature age endurance athletes. So there is a bell-shaped curve when it comes to exercise and the heart. Mm-hmm. And in and Shane, just in the few minutes that we've got left, could you just do a quick update on the app? You've got you've been involved in a development of a an app. Uh, yes. Um, essentially, we are. We talked a bit before about patients having more access to data. We one of the things is the Apple Watch, for example, as Peter said, it can capture a thirty-second ECG when you put your hand on it but also it's tracking your heart rate all of the time. And more and more, we've got patients at home who have blood pressure monitors or even smart scales. And so all of that data is great to have on a daily basis. And if we're in clinic, we might see a patient say once every six weeks or three months or even longer than that. And we only get all of that information then. And so more and more, I think, why should we look at it then when we could have changed something during that three-month intervening period that might have improved their health or prevented someone coming to hospital, particularly for conditions like heart failure? And so what we're trying to do is have an app that's user-friendly, that connects automatically to smart scales and blood pressure monitors and pulls all that information in so it's available to clinicians whenever they're seeing a patient or even in between But more importantly, over time, maybe we can use some advanced algorithms, the Terminator, if you will, to be watching those those data points. And then hopefully we can call patients more proactively and say, these are the things we want to change before you come to hospital. Fabulous. Um, We've only got like a few seconds left, but I'd really, really, really love to thank our guests today. So Michael, who's had an experience of AF, and Professor Peter Kistler, and Dr Shane uh, Nanakara. So wow, wow, wow. And we'd love to have you all back and promise it will be in a COVID-free environment when we've all been vaccinated and we've got into living with this. How about in the words of the Terminator, we'll be back. We'll be back. (laughs) Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.